This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have, and I'm not dating myself or her, but an old friend I think would qualify, Bryn Monahan. Bryn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm thankful you're here. I remember we first met at a Campton family office conference, I believe in Chicago or Boston. Boston, Chicago. They kind of run together. I mean, you you do a lot of these things, but I was just getting onto the circuit or learning about conference world and you were very kind to me. Uh, and make sure that I didn't fall down and, and trip over session. myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you you were my Sherpa in the early days. And we've stayed in touch since and it's been a lot of fun. We reconnected recently down in Orlando where, where you live in Florida and you're kind enough to take some time out of your, your beach trip to join. So thank you for that. I want to get into relative solutions, especially the next-gen work you're doing. But to give people a little bit of context, could you give a little background on yourself and the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, again, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. It's so nice to see where you've come from that first conference many years ago. I don't actually know how long ago myself, but it was a while. So I work with a company called Relative Solutions. And if the name doesn't give it away, I think it's a really fantastic name because uh, we work with relatives and provide solutions for sets of relatives. Um, So effectively, we're a consulting service. We work with high net worth families. 
at the intersection where family, which is very complex because relationships are complex, meet assets. And when you you share assets as a family, that just increases complexity. So as a a group at Relative Solutions, we really focus on uh, the non-financial side of the issues. So things like family communication, uh, next-gen engagement, transition planning and succession planning, governance, engaging new family members, uh, conversations around family values, and, and all of those really good things. I've been with Relative Solutions now for about three years. Prior worked for a small multifamily office in Chicago and have you know worked with many families over the years in varying capacities on my own as well. Yeah, you have an incredible network in Rolodex given your background, the work you do. And again, very involved in, in the conference world and you're, you're chairing CFOP this year, which is coming up, which is a big job. We'll probably get into that a little bit as well. Yeah. I'm going to ask you an unfair question to start right. off. I usually do this with folks that are in your space. Okay. What's your definition of a family office? Oh man, that is... A- <laughs> That's a good question, and it's a hard one. So, to me, a family office represents uh, the non-business side of an asset-owning family. So, families who share assets that are invested together is the sort of general, the overarching definition of how I, what I would call a family assets or family office rather. Uh, so, if you are a family that has sold a business and are now making investments together as a family, I would probably categorize you as a family office in some capacity. Generally, I think of family offices as encompassing at least two generations. So the generation perhaps that made the money and then the generation who is inheriting the money, though that is not necessarily always the case. To me, a family office really is about generational wealth. It's about thinking about the sustainability of wealth over time. So families who choose to invest together are generally thinking about longevity as a family, the generations that are living, as well as the generations that aren't living. And they can look very different from one another, of course. Uh, family offices can be as small as you know parents and their kids, or as large as you know seven generations of, of family members who are navigating those shared assets, the investment assets. You know the kinds of investments can certainly vary. That I think doesn't matter to a family office. And frankly, how you invest the money, otherwise, you know whether it's with alongside other families in a sort of multifamily office kind of a um, category or. A, alone, just your family in a more of a single family office, whether you outsource uh, or not, doesn't really matter to me. To me, I would say it's families who are investing together. That to me is a family office. And why do you think it is that it's become so in vogue now to you know say you have a family office, whether or not you do or not, but it's certainly become really topical even since I've been, I didn't come from this world myself, but my wife's family has a single family office. And I mean, it seems like in the last five or 10 years, it's just grown astronomically, just how topical it is. What do you think is driving that? That's a good question. And I I absolutely agree. You mentioned that we've known each other for a long time. And I started attending family office conferences probably in the early 2000s. And back then, most people were not really categorizing themselves as having family offices. I think because the idea of a family office, A, is that in the past, family offices were thought of 
thought of, in my opinion, as being much more complex. So the the definition I just gave is pretty simple. I think a lot of people in the past thought of family offices as needing to provide a lot of other services, concierge services, bill pay services, tax and accounting services, and that if you didn't have all of those things, you weren't a family office. And then there was a shift around the recession where a lot of families started investing together in more of this multifamily office style where they had a a company that was taking care of all those concierge services for them and they were pooling their money with other families and investing together. So now you have the multifamily office. And then all of a sudden people are starting to make their own money again and getting out of the recession. And now there's a lot of money back in the market and people, I think, sort of pulled out. The idea that of a family, the traditional family office from 20 plus years ago, I I don't think that most family offices today look like that. Uh, I think that some of them do, but you really have to have a pretty high threshold in order to have all of those things in-house. But you can have a family office without having all of those things. And now that people realize it, they're like, okay, we can call ourselves a family office. Even if our structure is not this sort of traditional, we do absolutely everything for our family structure. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I, I talked to, I had Ron Diamond on here. I'm sure you've heard him speak or know who he is. And he was saying that he thinks the the corpus that can justify a true single family office this day, these days needs to be pretty close to 500 million just because the overhead is so extensive and the cost of the human capital to help run it all has just risen dramatically. So I, I personally think that probably right. That's a big number, obviously, but I think that's why you're going to see this continuing growth of the multifamily office space where people kind of club up together and share resources. It makes a ton of sense. Our family transitioned to one recently in Nashville, and it's been great so far. It's just interesting to hear your take because you do talk to a lot of folks. And then I'm curious, amongst your clients, anecdotally, how many self-identify as a family office or they're just a, a family with an operating company or a family with assets and and they don't identify that way. Not very many identify as having a family office necessarily. We work with a lot of family families that still have operating businesses. That said, a lot of those families do also have a family office uh, separate from the operating business. Uh, and a lot of the families that we're working with are working on establishing the structure for their family offices. So that's that we're not necessarily putting the people in place to your point around human capital, but we help families think about what makes sense for them from a decision-making perspective. So what does that structure need to look like in order to support the family properly? And that can look so different for every, I mean, this sort of adage in, in our industry is that if you know one family, you know one family. And I'm sure you've heard that before. And I'm sure someone on your podcast has said that before. And it's just, it's absolutely true. They're all so different. We don't have a ton of just family offices in our practice right now, but we've certainly worked with them in the past and we'll, you know, we'll continue to work with them. We, we work with a lot of families navigating that transition though into a family office. So let's kind of segue and talk about this family office circuit conference world. You got involved really early. It's now become like its own ecosystem. And these conferences have become their own businesses in a lot of ways, driving revenue and growth. And because of that, they're trying to capture this growing audience, obviously. One of your talking points reminds me of the best piece of advice I got 
in law school when I was a first year student, which from an older person I knew, which was the best piece of advice I can give you for law school is don't listen to anybody else's advice. <laughs> and it's really true. But you can you talk about kind of some of the caveats that you put on, on people who attend these things and, yeah. and talking to other families at them and, and some of these kind of best practices that you might learn there? Yeah. So conferences are intended to reach a large audience at once. And I think I've been attending conferences since the early 2000s, as I said, so, you know, almost 20 years in various capacities, often as a speaker or a panelist. And so the advice that I'm about to give is a little counterintuitive, given that I'm often the speaker at a conference. But that is that when you're hearing from someone at a conference, what you're hearing is, you know, sort of these ideas of like, oh, you know, this this can this worked for one family so it might work for yours and that's that's the the word is might it might work for yours but every family is different as you know i was just joking about the, if you know one family you know one family and a lot of the a, a lot of the times in conferences what i see people take away as well that worked for them so it's definitely going to work for us so we're just going to try to do it the exact same way that i just heard and often that just doesn't work um what a lot of families are missing and I'll backtrack it quickly and say that I think you can learn a lot from conferences. You can learn a lot about the kinds of things that people are doing, the kinds of decisions they're thinking about, the way in which those families are going about making their own decisions. You can learn about, you know, really great resources. You can meet you know, the value of the networking at conferences in and of itself is huge. I mean, here I am sitting with you, you know, 15 or so years later after- Whoa, 15 years, whoa. I think that's probably true. Easy, easy, (laughs) easy, easy, easy. It's credible. We met when we were five years old. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Yeah. exactly, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, the value of the networking, there's so much value with conferences. And I'm not at all suggesting that you shouldn't go to a conference. I am absolutely suggesting that you go, but I'm suggesting that you take what you're hearing with the grain of salt and that grain of salt being my family is different from the family I'm hearing about. And the way in which they are enacting the things that I'm hearing may or may not work for my family. In fact, I'd probably say that they won't work in the exact same way. They kind of never do because every family works in such a different way and every family is structured differently. The the ideas are valuable. The ideas are valuable, but you need to take that to your family and figure out how to rearrange the ideas you've heard to make it work for your family. And this makes me think that we should do like a workshop or a webinar about how to attend these conferences, <laughs> like best practices, what to do, what not to do, you yeah. know, if you're a first timer, because I agree with you. I mean, you meet some unbelievable people. The networking is the number one reason to go. And I serve on some of these panels too, so it's going to be counterintuitive, but like b- b- the best conversations are always like in the hallways or at the lunches or at the dinners. And if you are thinking about going for the first time, you're heading into what I call conference season, like fall, spring, reach out to somebody who's been to these things a couple of times, who's not a vendor and, you know, try to have some conversations about, Hey, you know, what panel should I go to? What topic should I go to? Are you putting together a side dinner? Oftentimes, like the really fun ones are the ones that are happening outside of the conference, you know, in in many occasions, but that we should work on that. 
Um, yeah, it's a, that's a good idea. I like it. <laughs> um, so let's get, I'm going to ask you another unfair question. Okay. What is your definition of a next gen? That's also a really good question. So I think that it's evolved over time uh, and that there is a difference between what I would call a next gen and a rising gen. And here to me is the difference. Uh, to me, a next gen is somebody who has the intent of being a leader within the family. So somebody who is not, perhaps not current, currently a shareholder, but is going to be, or perhaps not as active because, you know, there's a generation above them that is still in leadership positions, but is actively working towards, or is going to soon actively be working towards leadership in some capacity for their family. A rising gen is sometimes younger, sometimes not, but as somebody who is in that younger generation, that next generation down, but is not necessarily actively working towards leadership within the family. To me, that's there is a difference there. I think those phrases are often used interchangeably. And I also think that there's nothing wrong with having both of those kinds of people within a family and next gen and a rising gen can be siblings, um, in my opinion, because not everyone can be a leader. So that's why I think it's important to think about the difference between not everybody in the generation that is going to inherit the business or the wealth or whatever the, the office is going to be a leader. They can't. And not everybody needs to be. So being able to differentiate between those two, I think, is really important. And exceedingly topical, given this huge generational shift happening, including in our family, between baby boomer, especially first-generation wealth creators, to I'm a millennial, barely, but I qualify to like this millennial Gen Z world. I think you're going to see more and more of these type of conversations happening. So along those lines, what are best practices in terms of engagement, education? This is a broad question, but going to the work that you do at, at Relative Solutions, where have you seen the most success and when is the right time to get somebody like you involved in these type of conversations? Yeah, so there are so many different ways to get young people interested and involved within a family office or family business structure. The good news is that even at a very young age, there are ways to get kids involved. And the best way to start is by thinking about the family unit as a whole and how a young person can connect to the greater good of the family, if you will. Uh, so some of the ways that you can do that, even with a very young kid, is engaging in family philanthropy, either by, you know, talking about, you know, the places where you're giving money or physically visiting or volunteering at places where the family is philanthropic. That is a very easy way to get a young kid engaged in understanding that their role is for the greater good of the family and potentially of the world. I'm not here to judge, but that's just, you know, that's a good way. Similarly, families that have businesses, you can have a, a young person, you know, visit the business at a relatively young age, start to get to know people. There are lots of different fun things that you can do from an education perspective that include things like scavenger hunts uh, around a business to meet the people that run it. You can even do that in a family office if it's large enough. The good news is that even for families that are now no longer running a business, you can still teach the history of the family and you know just engage in stories. It's really that familyness that is the first step. And the reason I say that, and the reason that that is so important is that there is no way in the world you are going to get a young person 
interested in leading a family if they know nothing about the family. If they don't understand their role within the family, why would they want to do that? There's no real reason for that. So starting with those those things and as young as possible, knowing that it is never too late to start. Certainly as young as possible, but again, never too late to start. If you haven't done that yet, no big deal. Start tomorrow. You can still do it. And then from there, you know, developing ways to really hear the voices of the young people within the family. So for example, and I'll tell you a little bit about myself here just really quickly, which is that I'm also a fourth generation family member. So my family is from Pittsburgh originally, um, Steel family, surprise, surprise. And uh, the, the business was sold before I was born. So I was technically born into a family office structure rather than a family business structure. And it's a lot harder when you don't have a family business. However, in my family, we were able to find ways for my generation to have a voice at a relatively young age by starting a next gen, uh, a cousin's investment group. And the intent there was for us to learn about investing together as a group which taught us a number of really wonderful things like how to communicate with one another, how to uh, form leadership. And we really had to form our own leadership and really learn each other's leadership styles. We learned what to do when people were not engaged. We learned certainly about investing and you know, we learned how to help one another. We also had the opportunity within that to become uh, rotating board members Uh, So each one of us sat on the board during the tenure that we were president of our, our cousins investment group. And it really taught us, you know, how to listen to the, you know, get more information, understand the financial structure of the family office. And that, that was really helpful for us because then when we, when some of us stepped into the boardroom as board members many years later, it wasn't so jarring. We all already understood the process of how that worked. Our our faces weren't sort of weird to the older family members sitting in the room. Like, what are these young people doing here? No, they 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 were used to that. And frankly, that was almost as important as us, you know, on the other side, walking into a somewhat intimidating situation, uh, is that they were used to seeing younger people in that room and and could kind of get used to what that would feel like. Again, back to my caveat from the conferences, this worked for my family. Doesn't work for every family. I know a lot of families that have tried this and failed. You really need to have a good structure in place to make that work. But that's an example of ways in which you can get people engaged. We also do a family day of caring, which is really helpful. That helps, you know, back to that idea of philanthropy and doing all those kinds of things together. There's a lot that can be done. It's really about developing comfort within the family office. So, and and, and after hearing you and talking to other people, there's a lot of right ways to do it. But is it fair to say the wrong way is just to do nothing? I think that that's probably the most wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think beyond the sort of not doing anything, not cross-involving education with familiness. So another sort of wrong way to do it, in my opinion, would be to sort of send somebody, you know, a, a young person who wants to go to business school and gets an MBA and then expecting them to be able to walk into the family atmosphere of a family office and understand the responsibility that comes with that with nothing tied to the familiness. So to me, the, the, the wrong way to do it is to not tie it to the familiness. That's the most important piece in my opinion. Yeah. And, and this echoes what I've hear, heard from others as well as conversations internally in our family. If the, if the only meaning of the money is the money, 
very hard to have a cohesive family infrastructure, be it an operating company or uh, a financial family office. There has to be more to it. And I think we learn through stories, we learn, we learn through narratives. But otherwise, I think it's a really challenge to have any type of culture that sustains over multiple generations. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about something near and dear to my heart, non-lineals, outlaws, significant others, spouses. What's the right way to onboard them and start that relationship? Yeah, that's a really great question. You're really full of them today. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that you got some intellectual stimulation while you're at the beach. I don't want you to just go soft while you're, you know. It's important. It's important. Got to, got to keep it up. So really good question. Something that frankly, I didn't think a lot about until I got engaged. So I will admit that is not something that I'd really thought about. Thankfully in my family, they had thought about it a little bit. And so I've seen what I would call a medium on the, on the scale of like really bad. Didn't you didn't prep anybody at all to like really great. You did this really well. I think my family fell kind of in the middle. So to give you some context, uh, In our family, we have a family history DVD that we put together at the 100-year anniversary of the family, which is around 2010, I believe. And we utilized that as a a tool for incoming family members. So they basically watched the DVD, got a sense of the family history, and then met with the CEO of the family office to talk more about the structure of the family office. They also met the other people that worked for the office, the CEO, as well as, you know, the handful of staff that we have at the office and, you know, had the opportunity to really ask questions. I would call that medium because in this case, my, my spouse and all the spouses that come into my family have the opportunity to learn about the history of the family, which goes back to the next-gen element of familiness. And they also had the opportunity, in my opinion, the more transparency, the better, to get at least a, a modicum of an idea of the, you know, how the family office worked and how that would affect him, us, any future children that we have, et cetera. And so again, to me, that's sort of medium. The better way to do it is to be more gradual about that entree into the family. So what are ways for your family that it makes sense to start introducing the spouse into the family unit? Uh, so for example, maybe it maybe you have a family retreat every year. And uh, if you're not married into the family, you're not allowed to come to the shareholder meetings and things like that. But maybe you can start coming to some of the dinners and sort of get to know the family. Maybe, uh, you know, you spend time with the, you know, current matriarch or patriarch of the family and spend some real time sharing history verbally rather than just on a DVD. Um, which, do people have DVDs anymore? I'm not really sure. I, I've I no way to play a DVD. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think I could. Like, I think I could do it in my car, but I don't think I could do it in my house. Yeah, I like definitely do not have a way to do that. So clearly, <laughs> for our family, that's not going to work moving <laughs> forward. You'll so, you'll get there. You've been around a hundred years. You'll figure it out. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get there. But again, it's the gradual introduction to the familyness, and the reason the familyness again is important here is that. Regardless of how spouses fit into your family, whether they can become shareholders or not, whether they can, you know, whether they have absolutely nothing to do with anything, your kids will. Your kids will be a part of the lineal family. And that is why it is important that the spouse understand and feel comfortable with the familiness of the family. So again, it all comes back to, to, you know, family. It all comes back to family. How can you make 
a new person incoming into the family feel comfortable with the family. If you can do that well, I think you're all set, no matter what your decisions are around the access a spouse has otherwise to the financial information. So along those lines, when and how do you have the prenup conversation? Oh, yeah. So that's a good one. Certainly, as once you're engaged, you should be having a prenup conversation. <laughs> I also think that if you're moving in with someone and there's clear intent that that person is going to become a part of your long-term life, intent being the operative word, I mean, you know, you just never know what will happen. But if there's intent, there's opportunity to start having those conversations. You know, it's easier when you're a little bit older and getting married. And I was a little older when I got married because both my husband and I had our own careers and lives. I think it's a little a little harder when you're younger. That said, if you as a family are clear with your younger generation, your rising or your next gens about the purpose of a prenup, if you can have really great conversations around, I like to think of prenups as like a seatbelt right? So we wear seatbelts in the car, not because we expect to get into an accident, but just in case. A prenup is the same. You don't get a prenup because you expect to get divorced. That's not the purpose. This is not unromantic. This is just a just in case. It's a document for just in case. So the earlier you can uh, let your young generation understand that a prenup is important, the better. Back to the example that I gave about my cousin's investment group, we talked about prenups when the first of the cousins got engaged because we had never never had to think about it before. So when the first of our cousins got engaged, we had a group conversation and we came to a group mutual handshake agreement that we would all have prenups. It made it a lot easier for the rest of us. I can't speak for that particular cousin. In fact, I feel kind of bad for her that she had to go at it alone. But when you have the group behind you, it makes the conversation easier. So the earlier you can have those conversations, and I'm not saying you need to tell your 16-year-old they need to have a prenup someday. But you know, once somebody is dating someone seriously, starting to have those serious conversations about how a prenup protects the family, I think is really important. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to do a whole series on this, maybe like a video, best practices. And I was talking to a professional and, and they suggest... Again, when you're older, not when you're in college necessarily or like post-college, but if it's serious and you're moving in together, having a cohabitation agreement is a really, you know, training wheels way to like get a dog before you have kids kind of thing. And because you're, you're going, it's a mature conversation, right? About what happens to the, to your, your stuff, what happens to the apartment, who gets what, and the best way I've heard to put is that if you're not mature enough to have the conversation about those type of decisions, you're probably not at a place where you should seriously consider getting married yet, because yeah. that's kind of what marriage is, is having a lot of fun stuff, but also a lot of very serious conversations about what's going to happen in the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, the other thing from my experience is that if you have the right attorney, and I highly recommend an estate planning attorney versus a family attorney, because the the mindset is different between those two kinds of attorneys. So an estate planning attorney is going to come at this from the perspective of the estate rather than, you know, like, oh, hell's going to break loose if you get divorced, which I find, you know, family attorneys tend to be more on that side. So if you, if you are working with the right attorney, um, having the prenup conversation or the cohabitation agreement conversation for that matter, which I think is a great idea, allows you to think about your shared finances before you have shared finances. 
And it allows you to think about decision-making around what is considered marital property for us. What is, how do we want our, how do we want to pay our joint bills? How, what, what do we want this to look like from a financial perspective? When we go on vacation together, who's paying for it? You know, it's, it, those things sound silly and simple, but they can become really big deal breakers for people. And as we know, you know, finances are a huge cause for divorce. So thinking about shared finances in advance and with a prenup, as you probably know, you have to disclose your assets. So that's a, that's a big deal. Now, now we have to, you know, we're really putting things on the table. We're really being transparent here. And if you can't do that comfortably, if you're hiding something, then I would agree with you that there's probably a bigger issue going on. And that really leads to communication, which it sounds cliche. And we, we talk on these like big macro level high terms, but I found that that is fundamentally the biggest issue that these families face is lack of transparency and really poor communication internally. So what are some things that are tangible and concrete that families can work on daily, weekly, monthly to improve that communication internally? Yeah, that's a great question. So communication is such a huge, huge, huge key. You're absolutely right. It's at the core of absolutely everything. Thing. There's a difference between individual communication and how we are able to communicate from an individual to another individual. And in families where we love someone, we have a tendency to be poorer at communication than we are with our friends or with colleagues or people we barely know because we know we can get away with it. And particularly in family situations where you're sharing assets, you need to leave that kind of communication outside when you're in a boardroom or, you know, having a professional conversation, which can be extraordinarily difficult. I see it daily, (laughs) I mean, really daily because I'm the professional in the room typically with my clients, right? And so sometimes that can be very difficult for people to do. So really practicing and reminding yourself before you go into a room. So this is, again, is about individual conversation, reminding yourself before you go into a room, this is a professional situation. I am a member of a professional board or I am representative of my generation or or whatever it, it is. And reminding yourself of how you'd behave in a professional setting, sort of asking yourself that question. If I were looking at myself from above and watching myself have this conversation, what would I change about my behavior? That can often be a good way to to work on that individual communication. Then there's also the really big challenge of, you mentioned transparency and uh, transparency in every family can be and should be different. I tend to be a fan of the more transparency, the better. However, that doesn't work for every family. And I understand that. And so what I would recommend is thinking about the structures that you can put in place as a family to regularly communicate to the people in the family, shareholders and not, and what makes sense. So for some families that might look like a newsletter that goes out, you know, once a month or once a quarter that shares updates on, you know, maybe some of the biggest holdings in the family or a business update along with some family updates. That's a great way to enhance communication. You know, certainly I would recommend that almost any family have some type of regular check-in on a quarterly basis, whether it's, you know, just a financial check-in or a more formalized board or family council or something like that. So some, some grouping of the family that is meeting regularly for regular communication, I would certainly recommend that for almost any family. 
what that looks like, again, is going to be different for every family. But being regular about communication, having a outline that stays relatively similar for every meeting, so you know you're not missing anything, so you know you're covering all the bases, uh, while at the same time being flexible for things that need to be added or subtracted. The key really is regular communication to as many members of the family as possible. That to me is the key. Yeah. And, and it, it takes work, right? I mean, and, and like you said, every family is different. You have quite a lot of households in your family structure. We don't have as many, but the, but the challenges are all pretty consistent. So t- talk a little bit about your role with, with CFOF. Oh, yeah. Because I do want to touch on that. It, it, it's a lot of work, but I want people to be aware of A, just what it is, and, and B, what your role is within the organization. Yeah. So CFOF is the Southeastern Family Office Forum for anybody listening who doesn't know. And uh, it was started 11 years ago in Atlanta uh, as a conference for Southeastern-based families. It has since grown quite drastically. And the reason it has grown is no longer uh, Southeastern families only. Otherwise, I wouldn't. Well, now I live in Florida, but at the time I I didn't. (laughs) So I wouldn't have been invited if it was just Southeastern families. So anybody can join. In fact, we have some international uh, attendees as well. And as I mentioned, I've been going to conferences for 20 years, and I really have in my head what I think makes for a good conference. And CFOF, the reason I'm so involved with CFOF, and I'm currently the chair of the advisory committee, is uh, that CFOF is, in my opinion, unlike any other conference, it is planned for by family members. We, of course, have sponsors to help us pay for the conference because it's a nonprofit conference. So we don't make any money on the conference. We need assistance there. But we're very thoughtful around our partners that sponsor the company or that sponsor the conference. Again, it's planned for by family members so and family office executives. So every single session that you attend, the people that came up with that session are family members just like you. And that's... Uh, I don't think any other conference does that. I haven't found one yet <laughs> that does that. Yeah. And the reason that's meaningful is that you know we're really talking, we spend months, six months talking about what do families like us want to hear about right now? What is the most important thing to us right now? And, and we try to address those as best as possible. My role as the chair of the advisory committee is that I chair all of the family members that are tasked with putting together what you know sessions we're going to see every year. And it is very difficult. You know, In the end, we'll have 15 breakout sessions that, again, were you know, individually thought of by family members, moderated by um you know, professionals in the field and, you know, panelists are always family members. People are just really there to engage and are so happy to share their stories. It's such a wonderful place for communication and networking and meeting people. If you've never met another family office, if you haven't started a family office, if you still have a family business, we have a track for that. It's really, in my opinion, I don't think a conference could get better. And I'm not saying that because I'm the advisory chair. I'm saying that that's why I'm the advisory chair. Yeah, no, it, it's like I said, there's a, been a proliferation of these other groups. And I won't name names, but they're very vendor heavy and there's just not a lot of substance. And CFOF, I, I highly recommend. And, you know, interestingly, the mortgage broker I work with from time to time in Nashville, and I never put this together, is Michael Brink's brother. Oh, oh wow. And I had no idea until he brought it up six months ago. And wow. like blew my mind. I never got the chance. And Michael was the one of the founders of CFOF originally passed away. 
So in any event, small world. Well, thank you for carving out the time while you're at the beach. It's been really fun to do this and you're a wealth of knowledge and Relative Solutions puts out some really good content. Could you maybe let people know the best way to connect with you and the firm if they're interested in learning more about the services that you provide? Absolutely. You can uh, reach Relative Solutions at relative-solutions.com. And you'll find more information about myself, my team members, uh, a lot of, as you said, there's a lot of white papers, a lot of research and things like that. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Bryn, B-R-Y-N, last name is Monahan, M-O-N-A-H-A-N. And you can certainly feel free to just reach out to me directly via email. My email is bmonahan, B-M-O-N-A-H-A-N at relative-solutions.com. Love it. Bryn, thank you so much for joining me. It was a lot of fun and it's been fun to just stay connected with you over the years. So I appreciate you taking the time. Enjoy the rest of your time on holiday and and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.